is Gene Delcourt and Rachel Fields with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Doug LaFollette, Wisconsin's long-serving Secretary of State, announced his resignation in a letter to the governor last Friday. LaFollette had served as Secretary of State for the last 40 years, a position which maintains official legislative and gubernatorial acts, as well as holds a seat on the Board of Commissioners of Public Lands. In his letter of resignation, LaFollette cited the staffing and funding cuts the office had received in the last three years as the reason for his resignation. LaFollette had just narrowly won re-election to the position in November by 7,400 votes, according to the Capital Times. Governor Evers announced that former Wisconsin State Treasurer Sarah Godlewski would be appointed to fill LaFollette's position. Two weeks before the April election, total spending in the Wisconsin Supreme Court race has ballooned to more than $20 million, according to a report from the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign. Currently, outside groups supporting conservative candidate Dan Kelly have spent nearly $10 million, while groups supporting liberal candidate Janet Protasewicz has spent $5.7 million. The total amount of spending on the race has broken national records for spending on a state judicial race and has more than doubled the amount previously spent on a Wisconsin Supreme Court seat in 2020. A large portion of the money has been spent on digital and television ads with only a small amount being spent on traditional mailers and canvassing. The Wisconsin Supreme Court announced Thursday that it has re-elected Annette Ziegler as the court's chief justice. Ziegler, a conservative, has held the post since 2015, according to the Associated Press. The vote was held in private, and the court did not announce the vote breakdown. The chief justice does not have any special voting power, but does have administrative authority over court procedures. The 10 Wisconsin Republicans who signed a document attempting to to assert that Trump won the state in 2020 presidential election are seeking to break up the lawsuit brought against them. The defendants are alleging that a 2007 law regarding election law violations gives them the power to ask that the venue for the lawsuit be changed to their home counties, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Since the defendants live in separate counties, this would break the lawsuit up into individual trials, as well as move them out of the Dane County Circuit Court to their home jurisdictions, which are likely to be friendlier to their case. The liberal law firm Law Forward, which brought the lawsuit, says that their compliant their complaint excuse me, goes far beyond election law violations and speaks to an attempt to overthrow an election, which would require that the lawsuit stay in Dane County. In-person absentee voting begins tomorrow at several locations around Madison. Voters will need to bring a valid photo ID as well as, as, well as proof of residence if they need to register or, or update their registration. Voters who have requested a mail ballot can return them in person to an absentee voting location if they so choose. You can find more information on where to vote on the Madison Clerk's website. And now on to today's top stories. For nearly 20 million years, I'm sorry, for nearly 20 years, Madison residents have been allowed to keep a small flock of chickens living in their backyard, allowing folks to skip the grocery store and gather eggs from the comfort of their own home. With the price of eggs rising nationwide, a proposed ordinance is looking to help Madison chicken owners by allowing them to double the size of their flock. WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout has more. Snickers huddles with her two sisters beneath a coop, trying to stay warm and out of the wind. But when former WORT News Director Molly Stentz approaches the trio with a bag of their favorite treats, they brave the winds and peck at the ground, eating every mealworm in their path. 
Snickers, or at least Dents thinks her name is Snickers, is a chicken living outside of the town of Brooklyn, about 20 minutes south of Madison. She moved there with her sisters, also chickens, a few months back, having spent most of her life living in Stence's near east side backyard. Before moving to the country, Molly and her partner John had kept chickens in their backyard for around a decade. While chickens usually conjure images of Wisconsin's ample farmland, surrounded by cows, goats, and other animals only seen in rural areas, the city of Madison has allowed backyard flocks of chickens since 2004. Stentz says that keeping chickens in the city is easier than it looks. The only thing to really watch out for, she says, is urban predators. The, like, predator situation in the cities Uh, is more intense than most people realize. mm. And because most yards of Madison are so small, there's not a lot of, like, room to escape. So, like, we have lost chickens, and I feel like a lot of people who raise them have lost chickens to... Uh, I mean, a hawk kill one. Hawks are, I think, the biggest predators, yeah. but then coyotes and coyotes fox. Coyotes and fox. Depending, particularly, like, depending which side of town you're on yeah. and, like, how close you are to the arboretum or to, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Still, Stent says that chickens can be rewarding for urban homeowners, not just in the eggs that can be turned into breakfast, but as an easy educational tool for children to learn about raising animals. Currently, the number of hens allowed in a backyard flock in Madison is capped at four. But a proposal going before the city council tomorrow night could raise the number of allowable hens in a backyard flock to eight. The proposal, introduced by Alders Grant Foster of District 15 and Yannette Figueroa Cole of District 10, would leave much of the current rules surrounding backyard chickens in place. Coops cannot be built within 25 feet of any residential structure on a neighboring property, no roosters are allowed, and chicken owners must get a yearly license from the city, which costs $10. Older Figueroa Cole says that the reason she signed on to raising the limit is to help families on a strict food budget fight inflation. I think now with the, with the raising cost of eggs across the nation, not just in the city, it has kind of created more significance to be able to allow for the people that are already raising chickens to have an additional supply for them to, to feed their families. According to a memo from the city's zoning commission, there are currently 114 annual chicken licenses issued by the city. Snickers doesn't produce many eggs these days. In their prime, a hen can lay an egg every day, but after about three or four years, egg production slows down. Stentz says that these days, with their aging chickens, they usually only get a small handful of eggs a week. That, Figueroa Cole says, is the driving reason why they think the number of allowable chickens should be raised. Originally, the ordinance called for the number of allowable chickens to be raised to 10, but members of the city's plan commission raised concerns at a meeting last week, saying that while allowing six or even eight chickens would be mostly negligible to neighbors, allowing 10 could invite sanitation or noise complaints, says Matt Tucker with Madison's Building Inspection. There's something else going on here when you when you have somebody that has 10 or more chickens at their property. Um, those There tends to be other issues that are going on above and beyond the typical conventional chicken keeping. That's what happened in Middleton, where until last year, there were no limits on how many chickens a house could have. Kathy Olson, president of the Middleton Common Council, told WORT that starting in 2021, the city began to tighten their chicken ordinances after she saw a rise in complaints about the noise and smell of backyard flocks in her district. 
In April of last year, the city finalized their new ordinances, limiting the number of allowed chickens to six or eight, depending on the size of the property. Olson says that the ordinance has been successful in Middleton and that the number of chicken-based complaints have dropped. Many municipalities around Dane County allow for some amount of backyard chickens. In Stoughton and DeForest, you can keep up to six chickens. In some prairie in Verona, you can have up to four. Stentz now lives in the country where there is no real limit on the amount of chickens she is allowed to keep. Still, she says that more people getting into urban chicken raising is a good thing. I just think the more people doing it, the more people can support each other, more tips, you know. Yeah, more normalized it'll be. Well, it's just easier, you know, if then it's like, if you do have a problem or you do, like, have a question, there's more people you can ask. The ordinance to increase the number of allowable chickens will go before the full Common Council for a final vote tomorrow night. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. In-person early voting begins tomorrow, and as the final two weeks of the spring election tick down, we turn our attention to a district on the Madison Isthmus. District 6 includes neighborhoods on the east side and includes the neighborhoods of Tenny Lapham, Willie Street, and Sassy, the Schenck atwood starkweather Yahara neighborhood. The area is currently represented by Brian Benford, who's not running for re-election to the seat. Two candidates are running for the district, Davey Mayer and Marsha Rummel. If that second name sounds familiar, that's probably because Marsha Rummel represented this district for 14 years, and after a two-year break, she's running again. Rummel spoke with WORT News Director Sholly Pittman late last week. Two years ago, you decided not to run again for Alder, but you're running this year for a two-year term. Why did you decide to run again? Redistricting happened, and my Alder, Brian Benford, no longer lives in District 6. So I went out to try and find people who might be interested, and many people asked me to run again, and I considered it. And looked at the council as it exists now and as it might be in the spring and they looked relatively inexperienced so i thought maybe my experience and ability to work well with all stakeholders would be an advantage to the city right now right now in 2023 what are the three top issues that you see facing the district in the next two years the first one is the lack of affordable housing not only in my district, but across the city. You hear people talking about the affordability crisis, but it seems to me that most of the new housing is multi-story housing that's at market rates. So the people making 80 to 120% of the area median income have a lot more choices for housing than people making less than 50% of the area median income. And Dane County is a wealthy county, so that our area median income is rather high. So people are getting priced out, and I wanted to focus on that and look at some non-market solutions instead of relying only on the market to solve our affordable housing crisis. The other thing I'm really focused on is, I call it a, a Green New Deal city. So Madison's been doing a lot of work on decarbonizing our fleet, retrofitting public buildings, offering incentives to fix up commercial and private residentials with solar and other solutions. And I think that is something we really need to continue to push for. And things like, you know, can we investigate whether heat pumps could be a solution that would lead us to net zero emissions? 
and other technologies that might be now coming available that could be useful. And then my neighborhood led the way in the, in the downtown neighborhoods for pushing for canopy trees as a way to incorporate more green infrastructure. So I want to keep working on that. And always um, we are seeing the arrival of the, you know the high frequency new metro redesign and the bus rapid transit. And it's going to be some significant changes. Many are probably welcome, but there are going to be things we're going to just need to watch to make sure that people are being served who need transit the most. And so I would think that would be the other thing I would focus on. So housing and transit, both two big issues in the mayoral race and also on an older level. Bus rapid transit, we are learning more about the timeline and how that will work. Construction is expected to be completed by uh, mid, maybe late 2024. How will bus rapid transit affect this district, which is on the isthmus on a narrow strip of land. Um, what have you heard from constituents about how they're thinking about BRT? I mean, we're going to see some changes between some of the commuter re- routes that people have relied on and this BRT, which will go up and down East Washington. So for some time, both of the sides of the isthmus had close by bus stations. And now it'll be a little further if you want to take the BRT. So that would be a concern, you know, for people you know, older people, people with mobility issues, are they able to use the system or will they start to rely on other uh, ways to get around? The thing also with the BRT and the the transit overlay district with the more intensive land uses along these corridors, we need to triple make sure that pedestrians can get across the street. East Washington's already a really dangerous corridor and I don't like seeing those ghost bikes as neither does anyone. We need to fix the timing so people can get across the street to get to the bus. Because the buses will be loading and unloading in the middle of the median, not on either side of the street. Which I guess makes it a quicker walk, but still you're stuck in the, you know, the middle of this highway. Thanks for talking about transit. Another area of the city that is seeing and will probably see in the next two years more changes is policing. Right. Um, We now have an independent monitor who is just getting started. We have a civilian review board. And as you mentioned, we have a behavioral response, not non-emergency response team. Another issue that could come before the council again is body cameras. So first, I want to ask, how do you feel about body cameras? We've long discussed the idea of them in Madison, but we don't actually have body worn cams. Right. So I have served on the council when this came up pretty much every year and every budget deliberation. And the council over those different years deferred to the processes that were underway, either with that early group that was reviewing body cameras and then with the ad hoc group that was looking at, you know, making a report back on our police policies and procedures. And so through that process, I think we finally got to the point where it made sense to try a pilot and that's you know at least being planned it's not apparently underway yet i had questions about the body camera not that i understand that everybody now in an incident has their own personal camera and and on some level it makes sense for the police to also have their point of view represented and you know as i've heard more than one person say what would have happened um, when tony robinson was killed if that officer was wearing a body camera And so, yeah, I acknowledge those concerns. 
But the other part of the discussion for a policymaker is how do we store all those documents? Are they public records? Can you go and ask for all the records? And I don't know that I yet have heard how we're going to address those things. There's a, a large cost to holding all that information. So I think that's something we'll have to weigh. And I do look forward to seeing the body cameras or report back after the pilot to see what we learn. So moving along from policing, another issue facing Madison residents in the next year and onward are F-35s, which are coming to Madison this year. And while there's not a ton the Madison Council can do about it, what is your stance on the F-35s? And how do you expect that to impact your job as Alder if elected? First of all, the F-35 program's a boondoggle. It's a disaster. It costs billions of dollars. This is our hard-earned money that, as taxpayers that we could spend on education and healthcare and lots of important things. It's a disaster. It eats so much fuel. It's, the carbon footprint is just horrifying. And so I continue to oppose them. And even though it's supposedly a done deal. I am not going to stop fighting F-35s. There's an upcoming event soon in Madison where Code Pink and other activists are going to come and talk about F-35s, and I'm participating in in that um, weekend of events. Recently, I reached out to Representative Pocan's office because he at least seemed sympathetic to people's concerns about the noise, about the environmental justice impacts on low income and communities of color near the site. And I hope to hear more from him and share what I've learned, as well as I hope, of course, WRT will keep us all informed. But I think that we just need to keep fighting it and maybe event inevitable, but I don't want to just settle and say, well, okay, now we're just going to find federal money to rehabilitate housing so you can stand to be inside your house, not outside your house, but inside your house when these planes fly over. And are we going to like insulate schools and all the other public places nearby where kids are going to be affected? I'm just so disappointed in our um, elected state, federal elected people who think that somehow this is a boom for Madison. Okay, thank you for that response. A unique part of being an alder is that you have two groups of people that you're responsible to. One is to serve your constituents who elected you, and the other is to serve the city as a whole and what's good for the city as a whole. At least I've noticed that sometimes those two responsibilities are in conflict. So let's say that there's a change the city is proposing that a significant portion of your constituents object to. How would you handle moving forward in that situation? It's like, who do you represent, the city or your constituents? That's a question that every alder has to face. And sometimes you're right, there's going to be a, a, a group of people who just don't like something that's being proposed and then they show up. And then meanwhile, other people are like, that's fine with me. And how do you balance that? So I guess I would go like a higher level is like my goal as Alder is to make sure people are informed about the issues before the city. So how do you as an Alder make sure that at the front end of a project, say an infill development project, you get people informed who live nearby and just in a broader area about what's going on, what are the issues are, and, you know, what do they think? How can we improve this project? Or is it just so egregious we advise the alder to say no? So I think at that front end part, you have to help people understand. 
And another way of answering your question is like the people vote for me, not the city. My district residents are the ones I represent. And that's part of what I bring to the city is their perspective. So when I when I get posed that either or the city or your constituents, no, I'm elected by this array of people with a range of opinions that I'm trying to represent. And that's that's our part of the city. So that's what I bring. Well, is there anything else I didn't ask you today that you would like to share with our listeners? Well, you did sort of say like what I like to say about me is I, I have like this anti-racist perspective. I come from, you know, a long a lot of experience doing community and and organizing. I, I think I bring a lot of depth of knowledge not only about city government, but just, you know, the neighborhood. I've lived in the neighborhood a really long time and I know our commitment to schools and parks and just you know, I, I feel like I really fit the district and uh, its values. And I hope people will support me uh, again. And I appreciate their vote. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Tally, for your time and uh, WRT's commitment to making sure people learn about these elections. I've been speaking with Marsha Rummel, who's running again to represent District 6 this spring. She's facing challenger Davy Mayer. The two will compete in a District 6 Alder Forum this Wednesday, the 22nd, at the Tinsmith. That forum starts at 6 p.m. and will be moderated by Isthmus publisher Jason Joyce. The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to local news on WORT. I'm your host, Gene Delcourt, here with my co-host, Rachel Fields. Thank you for joining us. Every Monday, we check in with Brenda Conkle and Dylan Brogan to take a look at what's happening this week in city and county government. This week on Forward Lookout, Dane County looks to free up some room in the county jail, and this iteration of the Madison Common Council meets for the final time. that time of week we got brenda conkle on the line to talk about what's happening this week in local government we'll start with dane county and happening right now is the a meeting by the public protection and judiciary committee so brenda tell me what they have on their agenda today probably the most interesting thing on there is that they're talking about revoking the sheriff's authority to house federal detainees in the dane county jail I'm guessing they're thinking that will uh, free up some space and we don't need to be sending people to other counties. So curious where that's going to go and what kind of ramifications that might have. Um, they also have um, you know, some sort of not um, just sort of routine items on their agenda. But then uh, a lot of the committees will then be looking at the legislative agenda for um, the upcoming year. Let's jump now to Tuesday in the Public Works and Transportation Committee. They're having a hybrid meeting. Uh, that's taking place at the Alliant Energy Center. So anything worth noting there? Um, they're looking at their agreement with the Greater Madison Convention and Visitors Bureau for you know staffing out at the airport uh, to provide visitor information. Desk is always empty when I go by there, but um, apparently they get paid to, to be there. Um, and then um, they have a few other um, routine items, I would say. And then they're also looking at that legislative agenda as well. And moving right along, how about the Park Commission? It's happening Wednesday. Uh, they're meeting at the Darren Marsh Parks and Lake Management Facility. Interesting they can do a hybrid meeting there, but um, that should have an in-person and a virtual option for folks. That is interesting. Um, so they're going to be looking at 
some agreements for uh, Operation Fresh Start to do some uh, conservation crews, which they they have been doing for several years, I believe. Um, and then they are purchasing some land at Black Earth Creek. And then they are also going to be looking at purchasing some land at Fish Lake County Park as well. It seems like they've been purchasing a lot of land yeah. in the last few years. Um, it seems to be almost every week there's something on an agenda purchasing more land. Um, and then they are also going to be um, just getting a presentation about the park that they're going to be at. Well, and land for parks, which I suppose is a good thing, right? Yeah, oh, def- definitely. Um, and it's great that they are able to find the funds to be able to do that so frequently. And then on Thursday, we have the Community Justice Council, and their meeting is at 12.15 on Thursday. Um, not a lot of information posted, but some kind of some interesting items here. Yeah, they're uh, talking about adding some members to um, the Criminal Justice Council, and so they'll be talking about that, as well as having child-friendly visits in the Dane County Jail. Um, so interesting to see what, what kind of solutions they come up with there. Yeah, I would. I, I guess they're not child-friendly now. Is that what we were to assume? Probably not so much, yeah. I mean, I, I think that there there can be some ways to make it friendlier. Yes. Let's move on now to the city of Madison. Let's get into the Common Council meeting. That's at that's a virtual meeting happening at 630. I think it's also in person, but a uh, virtual option for people. Yeah, this is the last uh, meeting of this particular city council. Um, in you know, except for the last meeting where they kind of say their goodbyes and welcome in the new folks. Um, so this is the last one, the last business that the outgoing alders will be um, participating in. Um, and they will be uh, thanking Tom Solis for his many years of service at Vera Court Neighborhood Center. Um, they are also going to be looking at increasing the amount of chickens that you can have in the city of Madison from four to eight. There's that somewhat controversial development on Sherman Avenue. Um, and then they have a ton of things on their agenda um, of various real estate groups and LLCs challenging the amount of taxes that they've been charged by the city of Madison. And this is the longest list I have ever seen of people who are challenging that. Um, and then after that, they'll be doing some other things like revoking a law that prohibits bike trick riding. What? Um, what? Yes, what does exactly. that mean? Like on one wheel? Yes, exactly. Have they like, seen you know, the, the gang of children on yeah. unicycles that are riding around all the time? Well, see, they're going to make it legal now. Apparently, it has been illegal. So um, they'll be doing that. That's part of Grant Foster's uh, never-ending battle to get rid of laws that don't make any sense anymore. They're also going to be dissolving the structure, um, the the uh, city government TFOGS committee, and they're going to be transferring all that stuff to the Common Council Executive Committee. Um, there's a few other things on the agenda, neighborhood plans, and some other things that you might be interested in. You might want to take a look at my blog. Okay, well, let's get through the rest of this week in city government. How about we just go to the, on Thursday, the Joint Campus Area Committee. A ton of stuff happening. I mean, it's unbelievable how many projects the UW is sort of in the process of. Yeah, it, it is. And then the list doesn't seem to get any shorter. I'm always surprised. Um, so they'll be getting a, a bus rapid transit update. And then they are also be looking at the University Avenue reconstruction project. Um, they're looking at their n- Near East play fields. Um, and then they are also going to be then talking about the long list of, of projects. And again, you can look at those all on the blog, but um, definitely the UW has the longest list always. Um, there's also some UW health projects as well as City of Madison projects in the, in the university area. 
And uh, also on Thursday at five o'clock, we a virtual meeting of the Housing Strategies Committee. And it, and hey, I I just been learning about this. There looks like they're going to be combining this committee with another committee. Um, yeah, I don't think this one is a, a slam dunk, but um, they are looking at combining the City County Homeless Issues Committee, the Landlord Tenant Issues Committee, and the Housing Strategy Committee. Um, normally, when you're combining uh, committees at the city, you know people are kind of interested in having less meetings to attend. Um, this one also includes the county, though, and so I then added some extra complications, plus uh, the staffing of this one could be kind of hard because it's staffed from about four different departments um, the way that it's done right now, and somebody would have to take all that on. So we'll see once if, if this one ends up um, making it or not. Brenda Conkle uh, at forwardlookout.com. Um, hey, a lot to read on there today, so people should uh, check it out. Yep. Thanks, Dylan. This Thursday is the anniversary of the first AIDS coalition to unleash power ACT UP demonstration on Wall Street. 250 protesters disrupted morning rush hour traffic, objecting to Big Pharma, profiting from the AIDS pandemic in 1987. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. This Friday, March 24th, is the anniversary of the first AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. ACT UP demonstration on Wall Street, the world's financial center. Their target, Big Pharma, profiteering from the AIDS pandemic. The year was 1987. At a busy New York City intersection of Wall Street and Broadway, 250 protesters disrupted morning rush hour traffic. Demonstrators laid down or held signs demanding corporate and government action to end the AIDS pandemic. ACT UP called for the release of life-saving drugs by the FDA, affordable medication, public education around the spread of HIV, and policies to end AIDS-related discrimination. Their actions, said ACT UP organizer Ann Northrup, were always planned to be dramatic enough to capture the public attention. The organizers used what ACT UP member and writer Sarah Schulman calls nonviolent creative direct action to communicate through the media not to the media, to pressure the institutions to change. Shortly after the demonstration, the FDA announced it would shorten the drug approval process by two years, responding to the visibility created by ACT UP. One year later, ACT UP held a second, larger Wall Street demonstration with over a 1,000 protesters. Then, in 1989, organizers held a rally of 350 in front of the New York Stock Exchange to target the AIDS drug manufacturer Burroughs Welcome. They lowered their AIDS drug price. Four days later, 36 years ago, women and men united in their fury at the failure of the government and the pharmaceutical industry against public apathy and medical profiteering from the pandemic. Since that day, much has changed, including the life expectancy and treatment of people living with HIV and AIDS. While many issues persist, ACT UP has created an indelible blueprint, paving the way both for other movements, including Black Lives Matter and Occupy Wall Street, and for subsequent 
generations of LGBTQ people to continue to fight relentlessly for justice. A 2020 New York Times article talked with a number of important ACT UP activists. One of the key organizers, screenwriter, novelist, playwright, essayist, Larry Kramer recalled, From the day I read the July 1981 New York Times article titled Rare Cancer Seen in 41 Homosexuals, I just knew that no one was going to do anything to respond. Several friends of mine had already died, so I started writing tirades in the gay press. It scared the crap out of everyone, and my pieces were published in other gay newspapers around the country. He recalled working for the Gay Men's Health Crisis, a patient care organization from January 1982, but they wouldn't protest. In contrast, ACT UP was a direct action protest group, he said. It was an exceptionally moving organization. There was so much love between the men and women fighting side by side. Another early member was Ivy Kwan, recalled moving to New York in 1990 and seeing graphics that ACT UP had put all over the city. One of them said, women don't get AIDS, they just die. She was dating an IV drug user who told her there was no reason to get tested, women don't get it. But when she finally got tested, she tested positive. The doctor who tested me said, the only place that will give you advice is ACT UP. I went to a meeting that same day. They helped me a lot. I learned not only how to take part in actions, but also how to be part of a supportive community. ACT UP was formed at the LGBTQ Community Services Center in New York City. Kramer was asked to speak. He began by having two-thirds of the room stand up and told them they would be dead in five years. Kramer said, if my speech doesn't scare the bleep out of you, we're in real trouble. If what you're hearing doesn't rouse your anger, fury, rage, and action, gay men will have no future here on earth. How long does it take before you get angry and fight back? Their first target became the FDA, which Kramer accused of neglecting badly needed medication for people with HIV. Kendall Thomas joined ACT UP in 1987. He's a gay black man who remembered that meeting as jam-packed. The first thing I noticed was the energy, which was palpable. All these people gathered together. It was a transformative moment. He became one of the many people of color involved in ACT UP. He recalled that many of them died before we had access to effective treatment. Within a few years, hundreds of chapters had formed in the U.S., and like-minded groups sprung up internationally. Kramer was still at it in his last public statement about curing AIDS, challenging then-candidate Biden at a 2020 town hall. He accused the pharmaceutical industry of profiting irrationally from HIV-positive Americans who depend on the medication forever, and asking, as president, how would you finance a cure and scale back the avarice of pharmaceutical companies? He died May 27, 2020, a few months later. But the movement he helped start continues. And that is our story for today. For the past and the past, I'm Harry Richardson. Cafe Coda has served up cutting-edge jazz and improvisational music to the Madison audiences for several years. In addition to its role as a music venue, Cafe Coda has a broader educational mission. The Cool School provides improvisational music education to middle and high schoolers. Now, Cafe Coda is working to bring new music out of, ven- out of the venue and into communities and neighborhoods. Earlier today, Cafe Coda founder and musician Hanajan Taylor spoke with 8 o'clock Buzz host Brian Standing about the Cool School and the new Coda Coach program. And so you're starting a, uh, you've been doing Cool School for a while. You've got a, a, a weekly showcase, monthly, weekly showcase of, of Cool School uh, performers. Is that right? It's, it, it's every Saturday. And it's not really a performance. It's, 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 it's kind of like a, 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 an engagement. It's really kind of cool because we have young people who come as far from as far as Milwaukee 
to engage in this this cool school session, which which happens from 10 o'clock until 1. The younger people come uh, earlier. Teenagers usually come about 11.30. But to be in a room where you have young people who are of various ethnicities and ages, various musical levels, who not don't know each other, to come together and maybe for just a moment be able to play together. Man, I tell you, if you wanna if you wanna have a moving experience, you know, just come up and you'll you'll see it and you can see just this, just the delight and the joy that comes over these young people's faces to know that, he, you know, I can actually do this. I can do it. Yeah. We do a thing called first time where we find a, a person who has never played a certain instrument and we give them a minute to teach themselves everything. <laughs> they, and then after that minute, I, we never do this, but I'll look at that person and I'll say, and now we will perform Rimsky Korsakoff's <laughs> Flight of the Bumblebee. <laughs> and they look at me like, wow, you know. But so, but you're starting a new outreach program. Yes. So tell us about that. Yes. What's, well, you know, years ago there was this uh, this unit called the Stagecoach, uh, and it was a it was a, a a mobile unit that the Madison Metropolitan Schools District would take around to various parks and neighborhood centers and perform theater, theatric events. Well, for some reason, it went belly up. And about 15 years ago, when I was a commissioner for the Sesquicentennial Commission, you remember that? I we do, were, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Um, we were able to acquire it, pull it out of the mothballs, and we actually activated it here in Madison until we lost the funding for it. And then we took it to Chicago. And for the past 15 years, we've con- been contracted with the Department of Cultural Affairs to do the very same thing that we were doing here. Well, now we have recently acquired another unit because the one in Chicago is still very active. Well, we're hoping to activate this, uh, this new Coda coach in Madison, and our first event will be in one of the schools in the Marquette Neighborhood Association as we've just received a pilot grant to, uh, to bring it out and, and, and make this a, an active outdoor unit. You know, we're finding out that as, as a club owner that most people in the summertime don't want to come in. They want to stay out, <laughs> and in the wintertime, they don't want to come in. They don't want to come out of their houses. And so we're hoping that uh, this will maintain some degree of activity and, and enhance the uh, community activity uh, of outdoor performances because there are many communities that still do not have outdoor performances for one reason or the other. I mean, here, you know, on the east side, we have an event every week. But there are some neighborhoods like in the, on the south side and on the north side that are devoid of that experience. And so we're hoping to supplement that as well. And what does the Cafe Coda look like so people can, or the Coda coach look like so people can see it when it's cruising down the street? Well, um, <laughs> we're, we're actually in, in the process of rebranding it because it formerly belonged to a solar panel unit company. And so we have to take the solar panel pictures off of it and and re- rebrand it. And if anyone has any ideas on how we could give it a creative uh, visual motif, please come by and talk to me. All right. We've been speaking with Cafe Coda's Hana John Taylor. Look for the Coda Coach at a neighborhood near you this summer. Thanks for joining us on the 8 o'clock Thank bus. you. All power to the people.
On this week's Monday Movie Review, feature contributor Harry Richardson watched new movies that recently started streaming. First is Monuments, a quirky indie movie comedy about loss and mourning. Then it's A Man Called Otto, a movie with a similar theme, but a bigger budget. He's been doing the exact same thing for weeks. Curing her ashes everywhere with him like a freaking weirdo. I've been seeing her. Laura. She's gone, man. You've got to do what we need to do to put her to rest and move on. That was a clip from the trailer for Monuments, a quirky independent comedy written, directed, and produced by Jack Newell. This is an offbeat, modest comedy that somehow ends up quite moving. Our story starts in the middle and has extended flashbacks. Ted, David Sullivan, is on the lam in a stolen truck headed for Chicago with the ashes of his spouse, Laura, a charming, sarcastic Marguerite Moreau. As he drives, he remembers their relationship. He is pursued by his spouse's would-be boyfriend, Howell Javier Munoz, a burly dimwit. Howell, for some mysterious reason, is the preferred suitor to Ted, a nice, unambitious guy who has moved to Colorado from Chicago so his spouse could be closer to her family or to get out of his rut, or both. After meeting Laura's family, one wonders why anyone would want to be near them. The family includes tough mama, Kathy Scambitera. A sympathetic cop brother, Grant, Keith, comforter, Caddy's sister, Crystal, Paulina Olszewski. When the ashes come around to Ted, he grabs them and makes a run for it. He steals Howell's truck and is embarked on one quirky road trip to Chicago. Most of the movie takes place along that unglamorous highway through Nebraska and Iowa. He meets a sensual stranger, Amber Shunori Ramanathu, in a roadside bar and ends up dancing with her and getting her help. In the past, Laura had always got him out of trouble, and she appears in the nick of time. But she's a very substantial ghost that only he can see and hear. Other characters include a van-driving trio who repeat everything he says in song, but help get him where he needs to be. The story is pretty gimmicky and surreal, but somehow moving in the end. A fun oddball comedy about a nice, warm, if doomed relationship with its central characters, well played by David Sullivan and Marguerite Moreau. It came out in 2021, but recently started showing on Hulu. Now for another comedy about death and letting go. This one with a bigger budget and a more famous cast. We can't stand watching one idiot try to teach another how to drive. It's lesson time. Thank you. Clutch in and brake. Brake, brake. The car is stopped. I almost hit the car. Mr. Ryan's a hybrid. That was clipped from the trailer for A Man Called Otto by veteran director Mark Forster. The trailer is a little misleading, I think. There are some fairly serious themes not mentioned by reviews I've seen. It's based on a Swedish book that was already made into a fine Oscar-nominated Swedish film, A Man Called Uwe. Uwe came out in 2015, and I remember thinking then this was a likely American remake. It took a little longer than I expected, but it was worth the wait. It makes some changes from the Swedish version to fit the American audience and context. This story makes Otto's old friend and neighbor African-American and his new friends Latinx. In the Swedish version, Uwe helps a young gay man. In the U.S. version, Otto helps a trans youth. To my mind, these are okay changes. The American version stars Tom Hanks. Otto also spends more time on backstory, including a young Otto played by Hanks' son, Truman Hanks, meaning cute, his future spouse, Sonia, a charming Rachel Keller. But the central relationship and reason for watching the film is a great chemistry between Hanks and his wonderful, spirited new neighbor, Mari Soul, played by Mariana Trevino. They meet as Mari Soul is having trouble directing her hapless husband, Tommy, 
Manuel Garcia roll forward, trying to back up his car with a U-Haul trailer attached. Otto, in true get-off-my-lawn, and the neighbors are doing it wrong mode, rushes across the street and ends up parking the car and trailer himself. Can the cheerful, caring Marisol break through the tough exterior of Otto? We already know the answer, but it is a fun and very touching journey. Marisol is pregnant and has two delightful young girls. Otto is incredulous that she doesn't have a driver's license. When she needs an emergency ride to the hospital, her husband has had an accident and ends up on crutches. So Otto gives her driving lessons. Marisol is flustered when she almost hits a car in front of her, but he says, don't worry, it's only a hybrid. Otto has an opinion on everything, perhaps especially cars. This becomes important later. Otto also makes several failed attempts at suicide. The first time, the rope breaks. Eventually, though, Otto finds reasons to live and rebuilds his connections with old friends and new. A moving, touching film, I must admit I cried at the end. You might, too. A well-made, wonderful, sentimental movie, well worth watching. Most of all, to enjoy the warm relationship between Hanks and Trevino. It came out in January, but recently started playing on Vudu and other streaming services. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brian Standing with the 8 o'clock buzz, Brenda Conkel and Dylan Brogan, and Nicholas Leet for technical production. The Truth, Victor Calzoni, engineered the show. Nate Wagehout produced this newscast, and Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Gene Delcourt. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.